Welcome to Passage to Wonderland, literary passages to complete your day. What is the role of the past in our present lives? All the Shining People by Kathy Friedman explores this theme through stories of migration, diaspora, and belonging in Toronto's Jewish South African community. In one of the stories called Seeing Clearly, Martin Rom, a doctor, tries to do just that, to see clearly his own life. He grapples with the relationship he has with his father, a former political prisoner, and the legacy he inherits of a troubled past. Ruth Feigenbaum sat in Martin's North York office with her thin knees pinched together. How's the family, Ruth? Martin asked, reviewing her chart under his desk lamp. I ran into Josh recently. Shame. He told me about his wife. He told you? Oh, my word. Did you give them any money? Martin looked up from her chart. She was lying, Dr. Rom. I can't even begin to tell you. She had us all completely fooled, even poor Josh. Shaved her head, lost weight, everything. There isn't the slightest thing wrong with her but a broken arm, which happened because she crashed a stolen car. Can you believe it? On the 401. Honestly, Dr. Rom, Nurit seemed like the nicest girl you could ever imagine. We never suspected a thing. Of course not. Josh is just beside himself. You know, out of all of us, only my husband said he had a funny feeling about her. I'm shocked, Martin said. How awful. So are we, Dr. Rom. So are we. Martin put his face close to hers. He could see himself reflected in the moist surface of her eyes. Follow my light all the way to the right, please, Ruth. Now, to the left. A little more. Good. Look up, please. Good. Now look at me, please. Just keep looking at me. Two patients later, another day was finished. Martin thought over Ruth's story on the drive back to his condo. To sleep beside a person every night and never suspect such deceit was unfathomable. Martin remembered the boy's behavior at the shop, how quickly he had Barbara putting cash in his hands. Could he have been in on the scheme? It occurred to Martin that even if the boy, a young man now really, though still boyish in appearance, were brought to trial and convicted of fraud, even if he confessed, Ruth would deny it till her dying breath. They say that mothers are capable of superhuman acts of strength to save their babies from danger. But one never hears about their feats of willful ignorance. Martin had his own mental blocks. He could concede that much. Christine, who ruined their marriage with her impulsive affairs, was one. He supposed his father was another. 
Despite the man's failings, he had behaved honorably in so many ways, after all. Martin had been 17 when his father was released from prison. Their small family had clapped when he walked through the high gates of Pretoria Maximum. He was carrying a box under one arm, containing his possessions, confiscated six years earlier. He'd lost weight, so he wore Martin's clothes, Martin's denims, Martin's green lacrosse shirt. Passing a little shop on the way home, his father asked to go in. I'll come with you, Martin's grandmother offered, but his father refused. He was terrified and didn't want anyone to see. Scared of betraying himself in the everyday world after those six years inside. It was as if Martin's eyes were boring into him. Someone asked Martin what was wrong, and he remembers complaining he felt carsick. If Ruth Feigenbaum could believe the best about her son, who had probably manipulated people's charitable impulses for personal gain, didn't Martin owe his father something as well? His father picked up quickly. Dad, Martin said. Lenny told me. I'm so sorry. Yeah, well, his father said. Are you going to come down with him? I think so. I don't want you two arguing. There's a lot of rubbish to go through. Don't say that. Mom had beautiful stuff. Yeah, well, don't you think her things should go to Lenny? How do you mean? She was his real mother. Dad, how advanced is your illness? I bloody well remember telling you about your mother, Martin. Are you saying she wasn't my real mom? It was years ago, I remember. I think I would remember being told something like that. That's no way to talk to a dying man. Dad, Martin said, are you out of your bloody mind? A dial tone blared in his ear. His father had hung up. He reached Lenny on his cell phone. Did Dad ever tell you I was adopted or something? Martin, Lenny said kindly, too kindly. You did know he was having an affair. Certainly not. Mom was too. They had an arrangement. Go on. I can't, Lenny said, and Martin was surprised to hear the emotion in his voice. He wasn't joking. I shouldn't be the one to tell you this. Not over the phone, at least. Martin, I, I swear to God, I thought you knew. You were another woman's baby, Dad's mistress. I just assumed that since he told me about it, you must already know. In the bathroom, Martin cupped his hands under the tap until they burned, then splashed scalding hot water on his face. There must be a reason his father had told Lenny, and not him. He could hear his brother's tinny voice as he crossed back into the living room. Martin, are you still there? Hello? He picked up the receiver. Do you know her name? Dad never told me. We talked about it when he was in prison. It was after you stopped going. But you remember what it was like. 
A goddamn warder on either side of you. No way to talk properly. Do you know why she gave me away? She was a comrade, Lenny said, and she died. That's all I know. How? The police? I don't know, Martin. I'm sorry. You'll have to ask Dad. Martin remembered the first of many times his life was severed in two. He was six. A world away, flower children were descending on Woodstock to revel in their freedom. While at home, under a bare light bulb in the empty servants' quarters, his father painted clear nail varnish on the pads of his fingers and copied forbidden words. A new coat reapplied every half hour to mask his fingerprints. Martin never saw his father at his work, but he could picture him, the shadows cast by his furrowed eyebrows obliterating his eyes, a muscle twitching in his strong jaw from the tension. In 1969, when Martin was six, he attended his first swim meet in the backyard pool of his swim teacher, a lovely person named Di, who taught the breaststroke by asking her pupils to imagine themselves as little frog princes. You mustn't submerge the tops of your heads, lest you lose your crowns. Martin's father had summoned the whole family to watch. Grandparents visiting from Joburg, assorted aunts and uncles, none of them knew he led a secret life. On your marks, Di shouted to the five little boys crouched with their toes curled around the edge of her pool. Get set! When she blew her whistle, four little boys dove into the cool water while Martin stared at their bubbling wakes. Nearly 50 years later, he still couldn't explain his immobility, but for the rest of his childhood, whenever something went wrong, from a poor mark on an important test to his father's imprisonment, he'd wish that he could travel back in time to that swim meet. If he could fix that screw-up, Perhaps he could prevent the others. It was possible that he was wrong about Josh. It was possible the young man had believed in his wife's cancer, that he had struggled with the terror and uncertainty of her illness. Either Josh had willingly betrayed the people closest to him, or he'd been conned by the person he loved and trusted most. Martin went to his desk drawer to search through some old files. There, he found the photograph of his mother he'd studied as a child. She was petite, with his grandfather's reddish hair and long, tapered fingers, which, along with an ear that was slightly pointed, gave her an elfin look. Her face was as smooth and pale as a baby's. She was only 31 when she died. He ripped the photo in half, and in half again, ripping until he had no history, no security, no burdens. The past was gone, and Martin knew one thing. He no longer wanted to be scared to dive in when the whistle blew. Barbara was working the next time he went to Digby's. What can I get for you, Dr. Rom? she asked, sweeping her pale eyes over him. It's Martin, 
he said. I came in to speak with you, about Josh Feigenbaum, remember? Oh, you didn't have to go out of your way. Not at all. Anyway, I wanted to ask you... The door chime sounded, and Barbara turned. It was a woman she knew, a friend. Martin hovered nearby, pretending to steady bottles of chutney, forcing himself to stay put while the women chatted. Sorry about that, Barbara said once her friend had gone off to do her shopping. You wanted to ask me something? I wanted to ask if you'll have dinner with me. He said it too loudly, trying to sound confident, and the other woman turned to stare. Barbara blushed. Martin did as well. Then she smiled, and he knew he'd had nothing to fear. Martin decided to return to his watercolors in the evenings after work. He painted a row of flowering trees, covered in butterflies, like the ones his father had seen from his prison cell. At first, he thought he would give the result to Barbara, as a present, to show her his sensitive, artistic side. But in the end, he kept it for himself, to serve as a reminder. Seeing clearly is what helps us keep our heads above water. It's what helps us hold on to our crowns. I thought about Martin, painting an image that his father saw outside of his prison cell. A beautiful scene of flowering trees covered in butterflies. It made me wonder how often we are able to look beyond the prisons we create for ourselves. Do we stay trapped within the limitations we create? Or do we look at possibilities that might exist beyond? Today's passage was from Seeing Clearly, from the book All the Shining People, by Kathy Friedman. Twelve short stories about the search for human connection and the attempt to find our place far from home. It's published by Groundwood Books. Thank you for listening to Passage to Wonderland. Until next time, rest easy.